0: Welcome to Empowered Leadership. We share candid conversations with successful leaders about what it takes to cultivate the leadership, life, and legacy you desire, and to do it with confidence, ease, and joy. I'm your host, Alexandra Reese. Today, I'm joined by Craig Trains, a strategy consultant who galvanizes and motivates diverse teams, to innovate new ideas, opportunities, and relationships that deliver tangible results. Craig today owns his own consulting practice. Prior to that, he was the Senior Director of Innovation at Adidas, an experience we will delve into in today's show. And prior to that, he held leadership positions at Nike, Outward Bound, and Coraggio Group, the last of which is where I met Craig. Craig and I worked together on building the travel and tourism practice at Caraggio. and through that experience, I learned that not only is Craig a stellar leader, but he's also a really kind-hearted person who cares about doing well by doing right. I can't wait for you to get to know him through our conversation. So without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, Craig. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Empowered Leadership. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great
0: wonderful. So given the name of the show is Empowered Leadership, I always like to start with the question, what does Empowered Leadership mean to you?
1: Empowered Leadership to me really means that it's an experience, right? And it's an experience either driven by an individual or a culture of an organization that you're a part of that where you feel trust, where you feel clear and you know what's going on. You know that you have a path to take, and you know that they, the way that you work with people, the collaboration and the interaction is empowering. It's energizing and that you really feel that you are a part of something important, something that something with a purpose and something that, where you can really be yourself and be supported.
0: I love that. So what I'm hearing in a nutshell is empowered leadership is really about the experience that you create for the people who are in your team or organization. So instilling that sense of purpose, inspiring people to live into it, and then creating an environment where people can show up as their best selves every day.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So I know a lot of leaders really aspire to create that. And then they struggle in that place of aspiration and how to put it into action. So what advice would you give to leaders who want to live in or embody that definition of empowered leadership, but may struggle in closing the gap?
1: I'm a big believer in that concept of doing and being and that a leader responsible for a team or a company, I think when leadership, not just an individual, when leadership really understands the requirement of balancing those two things that, you know, it's not enough to say, well, we have a strategy and everybody knows what they're trying to accomplish and we have the structure to do it and all of those things that are critical. No, no, no question about that. And they also understand that the values drive anything on the other side and the way that communication happens, that the brand itself, and by brand, I mean that the experience of that company organization inside and outside are is important, and that they have strategies on both sides of those things, and they have action items and objectives on both sides of those things, that is where I think that's where it happens, is understanding it's not one, you can't over-index on either side, mm-hmm. that's really, really critical, I believe.
0: Yeah, I think you're spot on a lot of and I love that you brought in that it's not just about leaders as individuals, but it's about the leadership team and the leadership team really doing the work to balance the doing and the being. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of leadership teams, especially since 2020, really leaning into the doing side because there's just been so much to do Mm -hmm. that it's been hard to rebalance and get back into that being side. Yeah. What does that look, sound, and feel like in action? How have you seen leadership teams be successful in creating that healthy balance between doing and being?
1: Well, you know, I actually I was thinking about that from the looks like, sounds like, feels like, and and I and I love that. Yeah. That exercise, right? And and I, and I so you know I thought about it looks like confidence to me when I see that, and that's not that's confidence by leadership, but that's confidence of the team at large with leadership that it, that people feel confident in whatever it is that they're doing sounds like play on words here. It sounds harmonic. And by that, yeah. there's a melody to it there. That doesn't mean that there's not highs and lows and all in, in, you know, crescendos and, 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 you know, not to play on the whole sound thing, but it, it feels harmonic or sounds harmonic to me. And then, The field part is, you know, I jotted down it, that going back to inspiration, it feels inspired and it feels supported. And I think that you you can inspire people to do great things, but I think you need to support them to do those great things too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I love that metaphor, the harmony metaphor, because I think it illustrates another really important point, which is if you wanna get to a place where your team is singing in harmony in a way that everyone feels confident in embodying that, and it's inspiring for the team, it it takes practice. Mm -hmm. You can't just come together, let's say it's a team of five. You can't come together as five individuals who've never established the parts you play, how you riff off one another, and expect to sing in harmony without putting a little work into practicing it. That's so important to do that work and to be really intentional about doing that work.
1: And, you know, uh, just to kind of play on this idea, you're going to hit a sour note, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is going to happen. And we're not professional singers. I mean, it, it's like everyone's going to make a mistake. And I think that comes down to, from an empowered leadership standpoint, that how, Groups of people, teams of people, how leadership and the others right in the organization are comfortable with the sour notes too, and can deal with those and help each other and, and work through those things, whatever that w- represents that sour note is, it's part of the whole process. And you know, we all hear over and over again, you know, that's that's where growth comes too, whether again, whether it's a business or whether it's an individual, and how how that happens, how that is dealt with is not the right word, but how it is facilitated and, and worked through, I, I think that it, that just builds trust and allows people to be comfortable in that. I think that's really important.
0: Yeah, that notion of just acknowledging we can't always sing perfectly and mm-hmm. we're going to hit those sour notes is so valuable. I. I spoke about this in my conversation with Jamie Waltz on the show. And again, in my newsletter, Mm. just the importance of normalizing conflict, because it's not about you did something wrong or I did something wrong. It's a product of two people coming together who have different experiences, norms, ways of showing up, and then those things not being in alignment. Mm -hmm. And I think knowing how to navigate those sour notes is so important. How have you created space and helped a team to cultivate that practice of really embracing when we sing off key? How we continue to stay in it together and keep working together effectively?
1: I look at that in two different ways. I'll, I'll, so I'll break it down in, in from the perspective of my my most recent, you know, working body of work at, at adidas where innovation was what we did right exactly. so going to the edge and and, and, and and pushing beyond what is comfortable or possible to create something you have to make mistakes if you aren't you aren't pushing hard enough that was the job was to get out in front of everything and find the edge and push past it so that you can actually accomplish something and Again, I, it comes back to that the foundational piece if people are trusting in leadership and they're both above and to the side of them that, that someone's got their back, and that making a mistake is part of the process, not something to be avoided. And that again, both peers and leaders are there with them, and everybody feels that, that they're working towards that together. You know, there, it covers most of of people being able to forget what happened, and or break down what happened and go, okay, here's how we're going to avoid that in the future because it's fatal, or it was just a springboard to another idea. The third choice is lamenting and feeling bad and and bringing everybody down because you just can't get over it. That's a choice that happens, but I think when you can reduce that from happening more often than not then you can move past. You can move past and people can get to the next.
0: Yeah. I love that you brought up your work in innovation because it is really the perfect example of a context in which failure is not only something that you need to learn to tolerate, but it's something that you want to embrace and incentivize. And it's I'm assuming a metric that you are often tracking and driving toward. Like, what is our failure rate? How many ideas are we getting out there?
1: Yes, innovation KPIs, or you know, are it is an art and a science. And mm-hmm. you know, what we fought, what we fought within a team of people, 120 plus people dedicated to innovate. in, in any corporate environment, and I, this is a reality. You know, how many patents did you produce? You know what. What well, What was the revenue that was generated? And of course, you know, those those are reasonable metrics, but, you know, to your point, you know, how many times did we fail, but what was the big idea and that we actually brought to reality and where is that, where's that taking us as, as a business, as a brand, as someone who might be trying to save the world. And, and mm-hmm. I don't mean that in a, in a light way, if you're, if you're trying to shift and and create business and help people perform at their highest athletically in this case and save the planet all at the same time, you're trying to do some pretty, some pretty monumentous things. And, but you have to, you have to, you have to fail <laughs> to do that. And, and that's okay. That's okay.
0: So a big part of spurring innovation is creating that environment where failure is embraced we learn from it. We treat it as a jumping off point for growth. You know, I know a lot of leaders today are really struggling with the creativity side of innovation. Mm-hmm. How do we generate the ideas? That seems to be coming up a fair amount in some of my my own conversations with prospects and clients. What guidance would you give to leaders, teams, organizations who are struggling to get The creative engine running to generate ideas to go into their innovation pipeline.
1: Yeah, when it's done well, is um, you have to create the space for it. Meaning, and by space is time, right? And both individual time and interaction time for people to come together. You have to really believe that it's not that group's people over there is responsible to come up with the ideas and then throw them for other people to work on. Yes, some people have certain responsibilities to provide maybe insights, but it's everybody's responsibility to feel, and this is kind of anything about empowered leadership, that they can come up with the idea and, and put it forward and actually have, a, call it a process, a forum, a mechanism to be able to share ideas I think is critical. And I don't know that that happens enough. You know, there's a lot of innovation teams in a lot of different industries, not just the one that I was most in. And, and I would say we did it as good or better than most who say, okay, you know, those people are going to create this thing and then it's going to work through our go-to-market process. And, you know, I'll, I'll be ready for the handoff and I don't need to come up with the ideas. I just need to build them. That's oversimplified, but you know, you know what I mean which is different than having an entire culture of people saying, we are all innovators, whether we are pushing a broom that, you know, or, or whether we are, you know, designing or engineering or, you know, that's, that is, I think, an old model that does not serve the reality of today. And innovation, everything happens so fast today, just by its nature. I don't care what yeah. industry you're in at this point. You know, you don't have to be in a tech industry, to think that as an example that, uh, well, it happens really fast in tech, but not in my world. That doesn't fly anymore. Everything changes. AI, obviously, is, you know, I don't care what business you're in today, AI is going to impact it, again, as an example, in one way, shape, or form. That's technology. You're in the technology business, whether you think you are or you don't think you are.
0: Yeah, that point around shifting from thinking about especially that front end generation of ideas for the pipeline is it's one team's responsibility to it as everyone's responsibility mm-hmm. is such an important unlock when i led large scale transformation work in operating models and org design one observation i had with organizations that had that old structure of an innovation team was it led to people in other teams feeling like one innovation isn't part of my job, but two, there's no benefit in it for me or my team when Mm -hmm. we do innovation. So there was often a real reluctance to embrace ideas that came from the innovation team. So even great ideas would die on the vine because the culture wasn't ready to embrace those new ideas coming in and people didn't have any ownership over them.
1: In my last role, one of the things that my team, amongst others, but one of the things was... We were responsible for a foresight report. So it was looking out ten years across, and it wasn't just an athletic. It wasn't about you know with the sports and fitness industry. It was looking at the world and and thinking about what could happen and sharing that information and then bringing the entire team into the knowledge that we condensed and consolidated. But then, what can we do with this? What should we do with this brings everybody into, the ideation process. And that, and I think that's where magic happens. You know, one of the wonderful things that, again, my kind of my on a pedestal leader of, of empowered leadership, um, Al Van Noy, you know, besides creating a culture of innovation and nurturing that culture, it was providing mechanisms for people to interact. Even at in the structural level, you have designers, you have engineers, you have sports scientists, and you have product creation experts, working not, again, in a handoff model, but working as as an integrated model for, you know, again, what could we do? What should we do? How might we do that? And again, that how might we is a really, really important question. And then, great, we're going to make a decision together that is going to best ensure successful outcomes.
0: You're going right where I wanted to go next, which is saying, okay, if... Leaders want to embrace building that culture of innovation. How do they put it into action? And a few things I'm hearing that sound like great practices any organization could adopt would be one really bringing external insight into the organization about what's happening. So, doing that foresight work to help open people's aperture to what's happening in the broader world is a foundation to spur dialogue and ideation around what does this mean for us? Yes. And then I'm hearing, of course, you need to have space Mm -hmm. because we can't innovate and get creative when our mind is on, well, I've got two more emails to write and then a kid to pick up in 30 minutes and I've got a 25-minute block of time. Right. Really got to have space to get creative without pressure. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the third I'm hearing is mechanisms for interaction. Yes. And I'd love to hear a little more about what that might look like in practice. Oh,
1: I'll give you some important. great examples. I'll give, I'll give you a great example. So one of my responsibilities on the strategic side of man, you know running the strategy for the, the innovation team was portfolio management. Meaning, you know, we had 100 different projects that we, that we were doing maybe at one point in time. And that's, that ebbs and flows, but your portfolio is, is designed to support where the brand is going and then where the brand can go so that, you know, our mission was twofold. We needed to fuel the future of the brand and fuel the brand. And what that means is there's things that are closer in that you have to make happen. That's part of the day to day. And then there is things that are completely new or a real stretch for where the brand might go. And that could be a product. Or it could be a business model and any number of things in between. So that within those things, you had a hundred things you're working on that that you want to have balanced across and you're, you're working with the, with the rest of the company to make sure that everything's in alignment. And on top of that, it kind of goes back to giving people the space to innovate is what's the mechanism that you can have for feeding things that that aren't being briefed by the company and that are absolutely something that you're passionate about or that a group of people who come together and go, you know what, I think this and you think that, and what if we did this? To have a mechanism for those ideas and a process and a forum, as I've said earlier, for people to go, you know what, I've been working on this for on the side or in the space that I have been given to work on innovation here's what we think. Here's the opportunity. Here's how it's serving the needs of, you know, people out there. Here's how we can do it. The beginning of what it would take to bring this thing to life. And it's not a shark tank situation, right? But it is a conversation around, wow, that's really interesting. What would you need to do that? How could we support you? what, what might the next step be for this idea to develop a little bit further? But having that is it's an amazing thing because it allows it. It gives people the it gives people the confidence, and the, again, the the way to serve up something that could change the world. Hey, you know we're doing these hundred things. Let's stop these five because this thing that we've seen develop over the last six months that isn't part of our overall business innovation plan. It needs the juice. That in itself builds confidence in the culture of the team. Let's people know that, uh, you know, anybody, not just that person or that person is responsible for what's next. It's something that is repeatable. And you, again, you can build it into your process, but there's a lot of creativity and a lot of opportunity also as part of that process.
0: The other benefit that comes to mind is the benefit for talent retention mm-hmm. and talent attraction you know if you look at the data for especially from the last 2 years on you know what are the top motivators for people to change jobs what are the top factors they consider when they're choosing between opportunities and what leads them to stay mm-hmm. it's often opportunities to grow and develop and opportunities to do what i do best more mm-hmm and advance doing that are at the top of the list, especially for high performers. So creating these opportunities for people to get their creative juices going, ideate, and try and move things forward is not only good for the business portfolio, Mm -hmm. but it's really good for talent retention an acquisition, and it probably costs a lot less than some oh, of the other strategies people are trying absolutely. to employ, like throwing more money at people.
1: Absolutely. I worked, by definition, this group of people creating amazing things for the future. They're all high performers, right? In the regard of, you know, what they know and what they bring to the team is, there's a threshold that they've reached by even being a part of the team, which is amazing, right? Right. We, you know, they truly—you got the best and the bright, a whole group of the best and the brightest working together on what's next—is pretty energizing in and of itself. But you know, if you didn't provide the way for them to work, you would lose all of the equity that
0: Mm -hmm. exists
1: with all these high performers. So, what you just said is—it's no less important just because a person has a high capacity for for accomplishing whatever it is they're great at. And there's—I happen to be working with more, more PhDs or, you you know, the levels of people that I've ever worked with, they're no different than any other team. If you don't have the culture and the, in the ability of of ways for them to work together, if it's not important to understand that, then it all kind of falls apart. And, Mm -hmm. And this is, but it's really, it's really clear who's successful and, you know, What can very easily deteriorate into a toxic organization, into an energizing organization and a successful organization.
0: Yeah, and you didn't say this connection explicitly, but it's implied in what you shared, which Mm -hmm. is a healthy culture requires clear ways of working. Yes, Because you can have the best and the brightest people in the room, but if you aren't creating norms that enable them and empower them to work effectively together, Mm -hmm. you will have dysfunction and you will have a toxic culture. And I think so many leaders miss that. They miss the importance of clear, consistent norms that are then reinforced when people cross a line or break a norm being able to go back to our earlier conversation around conflict, having norms around how you work through that so that you're reinforcing those ways of working is as important as getting the best and the brightest in the room together.
1: You said something really important, I think. I just want to pull it apart a little bit because I like the way you talk about norms. I believe creativity and innovation and process go hand in hand. You, But I also believe at the same time, and hopefully this isn't in conflict with each other, you know, just relying on, or on on the operations or process without the norms of how you do it, it's a recipe for disaster. And innovation is a great example because there are people in the world who believe that innovation is linear, and I firmly believe that it is not. It does move from left to right if you're a left to right person, you know, in in from a process mm-hmm. standpoint, but it is not, it is not linear. It, things do happen. You have to have the ability to work in chaos and still move left to right. And as long as you're checking things off that need to get done to have something complete that works at the end and the the norms to be able to do that, and the comfort to be able to do that, which is not easy for it's not easy for a lot of people who don't understand innovation, the reality of innovation versus mm-hmm. the idea of innovation. And that's there's a difference between those two things.
0: What are a couple norms that were particularly important or impactful in your team?
1: Well, kind of going back to an idea can come from anywhere. Mm-hmm. And this is a norm, and this was a this is a quote from Al. That innovation is born, not briefed, right? And that's not to say that a business need, if you want to call that a brief, isn't relevant. But the norm, the ability, the norm of people working together to fuel that spark into a flame and then that flame into a, you know a fire is was a critical norm mm-hmm. and And that's around teamwork and communication and support and and removing roadblocks and protecting an idea, and then maybe even killing the idea because it didn't pan out. You know, I think that's another norm from an innovation and success standpoint is how many organizations might you have seen where, whether you want to call it a sacred cow or something that says, oh, we've invested too much to quit now. It's like, Well, maybe
0: you're going to keep investing more.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) that's
0: not going to (laughs) work.
1: And and here's another great example. Sometimes a great idea is a great idea and will be a great idea, but the time is not right. You know, Mm -hmm. so an example that I could say is, you know, the insight is correct. The outcome for what that product or experience or whatever is, is valid. And we see a huge opportunity but the technology or this way of doing it doesn't exist yet. It's okay to put something on pause and put it on the shelf and go, you know what? We're going to keep working on this insight and there is, there's going to be an unlock belief that there could be an unlock in the future that when fit into that thing can revitalize that idea to be the big idea that it was thought to be at the very beginning. And
0: Yeah, and when I think about what the most important norms are, I think it's embedded in what you just shared, which is it's about figuring out what are the hardest things for us to naturally do mm-hmm. and how do we create some norms about how we do those things to make them easier, yeah. especially things that tend to be stress inducers, like killing an idea mm-hmm. or like navigating conflict or like kind of storming through. Decision-making. You know, norm yeah. Norms around
1: decision-making <laughs> yep. are are hypercritical and very poorly understood by a, a lot of people. And that's not because Just it is hard. De- decision-making is hard to pick what mayonnaise <laughs> you're going to buy. It's really hard to, you know, think about where are we going to invest $10 million is also, how are we going to make decisions? How are we going to, to your point, I think navigating conflicts of decision-making kind of go hand in hand. How are we going to do that? And having people decide, I think maybe this is the unlock is on any given project or thing, you might decide what the decision-making process is going to be for that thing. And they might not be the same on every level. But I think also from an empowered leadership standpoint, when you can give people the ability to make the right level of decisions and give it to them and not, again, within reason, not question that. Then again, that's the ripple effect for that positive and negative is really critical.
0: I think about for organizations who are interested in innovation, interested in moving more quickly, preparing and leading the future, often the most critical bottleneck is decision making. Mm -hmm. And it's typically leaders don't know how to delegate power or they don't have the trust to delegate the power of decision-making. So they end up being a bottleneck. Yes, And then when they get into the decision-making room, they have no established criteria by which they're making a decision. And they don't have clarity around, is this a consensus decision, a majority decision? Are we informing, but there's really one person in the team who ultimately has the authority to decide. Yes, And so it ends up being about who has a stronger voice who has more soft power. And I see though the lack of healthy norms around decision-making, I think is a top source of dysfunction within leadership teams today and what ultimately does prevent a lot of organizations from taking the work they do in innovation, in portfolio development, in the strategy room and executing it Yes, to drive results.
1: I couldn't agree more. And then even if you have some of those things figured out, time and access to if not the person who is making the decision or the time frame for when the decision needs to be made so that things can move at a healthy pace.
0: I worked several years ago as the strategic advisor on an agile transformation and this organization really wanted to improve their software delivery. And the one constraint they wanted to put on the transformation was we could not touch the intake process for requests. And their current intake process was people in the rest of the business, the internal customers would make a request or state a problem. And then the leadership team for the software development department or group would then filter all the requests. And then as a team, make a decision about Which ones will we put in our pipeline? What will we do about them? And how will we sequence them? Mm -hmm. And that, if you can't touch that, you can't improve speed to market. There's nothing you can do in the delivery side that will address those types of delays in decision-making.
1: As you mentioned earlier about norms and and great cultures and, and great leadership is thinking about how people come into an organization. I'm a huge proponent and have, have developed a number of different onboarding programs. And, you know, that was an, that was a really interesting thing from bringing someone in. I talked about this amazing a group of, you know, highly successful people. But, you know, how do you bring another highly successful person into an organization and the norms around doing that with absolute forethought <laughs> and with a real plan for getting someone up to speed and productivity. And thinking about it in the terms of what does the first year look like, not what does the first week or month look like. That's another norm that I, from a highly successful organization that thinks in those terms. And then what is the path of that person beyond one year two? That I think is a really, really important norm for organizations to think about. It's and I think times it's rushed. Oh, we got to get someone in the seat. But when you have a process for doing that, and then the norm of understanding its importance, and have that—that that I think is a, a, another great thing to for any organization to think about.
0: I would say it's one of the most important things hiring managers, talent acquisition and management teams, managers onboarding new people should be thinking about today, because you know we used to rely. We, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Used to rely a lot on the informal connections that people would make by virtue of working together in the office to create a social network, to create that team cohesion and sense of belonging that ultimately we now know are huge contributing factors to people's choice to stay in an organization. And now, without those informal interactions, people don't have the opportunity the knowledge, the ability, and the support to build the type of social network mm-hmm. and cohesive team that enables them to really be successful, not just in, to your point, the first 30, 60, 90 days, but in the first year and beyond. I do want to ask, as there were a couple questions I wanted to make sure we covered as we near the end of our conversation. One is, you mentioned in preparation for today that you had given some thought to who are the leaders that most influenced you mm-hmm. at different periods in your journey and yes. I'd love to just create space for you to share what were the biggest insights that you had from that reflection.
1: There were people who helped and I think once I got into transition into you know thinking even during college some of the people that I met while I was, you know immediately after college, a gentleman by the name of Peter Mintz, who's just been a a mentor, personal and business mentor of mine who took me under his tutelage and just taught me great things about about you know, just being mindful, <laughs> setting a course and being consistent and and thinking big. you know he he was great. There was a doctor who, I butted into a conversation working at a sporting goods store in Santa Barbara, and I butted into this conversation with this woman named Peggy Marchbanks, who was a consummate jazzercise instructor. So I'm totally dating myself. This is the the (laughs) mid-80s. And and this gentleman, Chris Lambert, who was a ER doctor, the two of them were creating a preventative health program, which in the mid-80s was kind of a revolutionary thing. And I was pre-med in school, and I and I butted into this conversation that turned into an internship, and we become. You know, he's been a mentor of mine too. My entire life, he, those are two early individuals that, at that transition of, you know, going to school and going to work for for real, I just thought about these amazing lessons that they told me that I've built upon over the decades and then i think about going into nike i was 29 years old 28 29 years old and you know this the the sales manager for the company who you know from from jersey with all of the all of the requisite you know sayings that you might imagine from the time and from the geography was just brilliant in showing what might not at the time been considered empowered leadership but mm-hmm. in retrospect, you go all the exhibits of trust and support and challenge and clarity and inspiration. I just I, I love Billy Compton. And, and uh, you know, I had a I had a boss, Gordon McFadden, within Nike, who when I was running a, a portion of the of the outdoor business and he came in to be the leader of this big initiative that Nike was going to grow the outdoor business to. You know, great heights, and he came from the outside. He wasn't a homegrown Nike person, and so he brought in some really great perspectives. That uh, you know, I thought I was the dyed-in-the-wool guy, and he was the new guy. But he opened the door for me to see things without blinders on, which I which mm-hmm. I really respect. In fact, he is the reason I left Nike. Not because he got rid of me, but he saw a growth opportunity to become a leader at an ex- senior executive level at the CEO level and he made the recommendation and he, he helped me reduce my fear for what it would be like to leave the blanket of warmth that i thought yeah. corporate life was to run a not for profit and outward bound i mean i thought as a ceo that that he was an empowered empowering leader
0: what a gift my- to have a leader who you're on their team and clearly they really value you and yet They're willing to let you go because they see something open to you that's bigger than what they can create for you in their own space.
1: And what I could even see necessarily myself, too. That was was a great boost.
0: I love that. And your story illustrates a couple, I think, important points. One is, regardless of what stage we're at, we need people in our lives who help us to open our aperture. Mm -hmm. And see and experience new ways of thinking and doing things, be it in your 20s or in your 50s or 60s and beyond. So never giving up that drive to surround yourself with people who don't think and act like you.
1: Absolutely. And I think
0: another is having the courage to approach people that you that you admire or respect or bump into and politely butt in. Yes. And I think I see a lot of people who are very nervous, even Mm -hmm. people who are in the C-suite, they're very nervous about feeling like they're intruding on someone's time. But it's a gift that you're giving to somebody when you say, I respect you. I really admire what you've done. How open would you be to a coffee?
1: I think people are, are, I think people by and large are conditioned to want to help others, but it takes the unlock to ask. And you don't have to be asking for a big thing, <laughs> time or a question. I think is sometimes all you know all it takes. But I think we do live in a world where personal interaction is not necessarily everybody's most. I won't say best skill set, but comfortable skill set because yes, there's so many ways agree. to to communicate or or touch people, and those are, they all have their their place. But I I'm a I'm a huge proponent of walking up to someone and go, hey, I'd like to ask you a question.
0: Likewise, that's why I do this. (laughs) I get to do this every week. (laughs) The last question I'd love to ask is, um, and I think I'd shared this with you before, you know, if there was one piece of conventional leadership wisdom that you think is outdated
1: Mm. and
0: no longer relevant, what would it be?
1: That the... That the hierarchy of position is and is the mechanism for decision making and success. I think that is um, is still overly relied on, and oftentimes too, when you when you bridge even outside of the United States into a global culture where where hierarchy you know t- can just overpower uh, greatness. That's that's something that I think there's little or no place for you know, you you do need structure and you do do need decision-making, but associated with that. But I think an over-reliance on that is it doesn't work.
0: I would absolutely agree. And I think we've, it's a good cherry on top of our earlier conversation about the importance of if you want to move quickly Mm -hmm. and be the most effective, you have to distribute power and decision-making down through the organization. Absolutely. And your ability to let go of those two things is a measure of success, not a measure of failure or a lack of intelligence or ability on your part as a leader.
1: I completely agree.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Craig. This was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it.
1: it was really fun. Really, really fun.
0: You can find Craig on LinkedIn. Please check the show notes for the link to his profile. To find out more on how you can improve your leadership life and impact with confidencies and joy, please visit my website, opastrategy.com. That's O-P-A strategy.com. And then please make sure to search for Empowered Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and click to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. And if you enjoyed this one, please do share with a friend or a colleague. It makes a big difference. Thank you so much and have a lovely day.